Amen. Thank you, Jake and band. Hope that you have a Bible accessible tonight. You're going to need that. You can go ahead and find the book of Ephesians chapter 4. A few weeks back, I posted on one of our now world-famous pastor log Facebook Live videos that we were going to let you, our church family, pick the songs and the sermons for these last three Wednesday nights in the month of May. And so several of you voted and uh, messaged Jake and I, and Jake will be picking some of those songs. Uh, We're going to do one before we finish tonight that was a request from Gene Wills, and so it's one of my favorites. I'm glad Gene requested it. One of the requests, I got several, one of the requests that I got for Wednesday night sermon topics was from Matt and Peggy Irvin, and they messaged me and said, what about Ephesians 4.29? And there was something in their life that had led to them thinking about this verse. Ephesians 4.29 says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up. And I thought, well, that's an interesting recommendation. So I thought about that verse, and I decided, yes, we're going to do that verse. And originally I thought we'll spend one night talking about just that verse, and then I thought, no, let's just sort of expand that a little bit. And so tonight, next Wednesday, and then two weeks from tonight, we're going to be looking at Ephesians 4, verse 17, all the way down to verse 32. And we're just going to kind of make a slow roll through these two paragraphs and think about what Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 4 here. I thought we might start just talking about the city of Ephesus. Uh, It's really a remarkable city from the ancient world. And there's several things that I thought I might just mention to you. This is a picture of the Roman Empire, all the different colors. You can see the black lines are sort of modern day uh, political boundaries, but the colors are Roman provinces, all these different provinces in the Roman Empire. And I've put a yellow circle around the end of what we call Turkey, what then was Asia or Asia Minor. And right there on the seacoast in the middle of that yellow circle was the ancient city of Ephesus. It was a very large city by ancient standards. There was some 50,000 people who lived there. And when I say 50,000 people, you say, well, that doesn't sound very big at all. It was the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. So just for a point of comparison, the fourth largest city in the United States, according to the authoritative website Wikipedia, is Houston, Texas. And so when you think about Houston, you think that's a big city. That's sort of the mindset that people had in the ancient world when they thought about Ephesus. Another parallel is that they're both port cities, big cities on the coast, big cosmopolitan cosmopolitan, metropolitan cities, 50,000 people. Some of you, I imagine, have visited the Holy Lands, Greece, Turkey, this part of the country, and you've been to Ephesus. You can go there and you can visit the ruins of Ephesus. Uh, Up on the top left, you see Main Street, or what used to be Main Street. That was the hot drag. You would walk up and down Ephesus uh, Boulevard, I suppose. Down on the bottom left is a, uh, an edifice of an ancient library uh, there in Ephesus. The bottom right uh, is obviously an amphitheater where there would be plays and performances. And the top right is actually a house. And I'm going to make reference to that house in just a moment. So you might just sort of uh, steal that picture away in your mind. One of the most important things about the ancient city of Ephesus is that it was home 
to one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was the temple of Artemis. This is an artist rendering of what that temple may have looked like. It was a remarkable facility. It took 120 years to build it. It was 418 feet long by 239 feet wide. There were over 100 columns that were 56 feet tall in this temple. It was a a mecca, a headquarters, if you will, for the worship of Artemis. Today, if you go to the ruins, Temple of Artemis looks like this. One column left. Not very impressive today. In Paul's time, in the first century, it was remarkably impressive. It was something that people would have traveled to see and to visit. Now let's talk about the church uh, in Ephesus just for a minute. This is a church that Paul started. The first time that Paul visited Ephesus was on his second missionary journey. You can go back and read this in Acts 19. We're not going to track through Acts 19. I just want you to know the backstory of Paul's experience in Ephesus. He's on a missionary trip. He comes to Ephesus. The first group of people he meets are a dozen or so men who were followers. They were disciples of John the Baptist. They had been baptized by John, and somehow they had not heard the rest of the story. Paul fills them in on the rest of the story. They put their faith in Jesus. He baptizes them. They receive the Holy Spirit. That's the beginning of the church in Ephesus. And Paul goes with these men, Jewish men, who had listened to John, and he sets up shop in the synagogue, and he starts to preach in the synagogue in Ephesus. And it lasts a couple of months And the Jewish leaders in the synagogue say to Paul, you got to go. You can't stay, and they run him out. So Paul leaves the synagogue, and he sets up shop in a building. The book of Acts tells us a building called the Hall of Tyrannus. And for several years, Paul and the church meet in that building, a public space that they rent or they borrow or someone gives them access to. They meet in that facility, and Paul preaches, and he teaches And he has Bible studies, and he delivers sermons, and he just does it over and over and over and over again. The Bible tells us his teaching ministry in Ephesus was so effective that every resident of the region had the opportunity to hear Paul preach. And one of the things that drew people to hear Paul preach in Ephesus was miracles. Paul was performing remarkable miracles, casting out demons, other exorcists were, not, uh, exorcists were not able to duplicate what Paul was doing. Uh, he was healing people. Uh, other magicians and healers were not able to do what Paul was able to do. And at one point, the pagan peoples in and around Ephesus were so awestruck by what God was doing through the Apostle Paul, they took all their magic paraphernalia, all their magic books, they piled them up in the middle of the city, a pile of magical paraphernalia worth millions of dollars in today's money. They threw gasoline on the pile and they lit it up in flames. And they simply acknowledged all of our tricks and spells and incantations, they don't hold a candle to what God is doing through Paul. About that time, Paul ran into trouble. There was a man in Ephesus named Demetrius. Demetrius was in charge of the silversmith guild. 
The silversmith guild made their money. They paid the mortgage. They bought the groceries by casting and selling idols of Artemis. So many people in the city turned away from pagan worship to trust in Jesus that there was no market to sell those silver statues. And Demetrius said, this, this can't go on. So just like the Jews had run Paul out of the synagogue, Demetrius starts a riot and they literally run Paul out of Ephesus. That's Acts 19. He passes back by the city in Acts 20. He visits Ephesus for the last time on his way back to Jerusalem. He's traveling back to Jerusalem. He stops to see his friends in Ephesus and he knows this is the last time I'm going to see these people. Paul stayed and ministered in Ephesus longer than any other place he stopped on his missionary journeys. He had a deep love and affection for these people. He was close to these people. He cared about these people. When he said his goodbye to the elders of the church in Ephesus, they all got down on their knees and they prayed and they wept and they knew this is it. We are not going to see Paul again. They did hear from him again. Paul wrote a letter to the church in Ephesus, and he wrote two letters to Timothy, who was the pastor of the church in Ephesus after Paul left. So this is a lot of correspondence between Paul and these people. He stays for several years. He stops back by, and they have a, a prayer meeting. He writes them a letter. He sends two letters to their pastor. And in addition to all the connection with Paul, there's a connection with the Apostle John. And I'll just mention this briefly. Tradition says the Apostle John pastored the church in Ephesus. And it's interesting, when you read the book of Revelation, and you read these letters to the churches, the first church that receives a letter from Jesus through John is the church in Ephesus. Now, here's why I tell you all of that stuff. We know an incredible amount about the church in Ephesus. We know about its founding, we know about its history, we know about its pastors, we know about its struggles, we know how the church developed over the years, all the way to the book of Revelation, which was written decades after Paul had been there. And we see some of the issues that had, had popped up and cropped up in this church. We know a lot about the church in Ephesus. And when you think about Ephesians 4, the big idea of Ephesians 4 is in a sense the big idea of the book of Ephesians. And it's really, really simple. Jesus saves sinners and Jesus changes sinners. He saves sinners. How many times have you seen an overpass where somebody has graffitied Jesus saves or a sign at a ball game that says Jesus saves? We hear that phrase thrown around a lot. Ephesians talks about that. It also talks about the fact that Jesus changes sinners. Yes, he saves them, and that comes first in the book, but secondly, he changes them. And that's what you see in Ephesians 4. Paul begins to talk about Jesus changing sinners into new kinds of people, different kinds of people. So we're going to just, over the next couple of weeks, look at Ephesians 4, 17 to 32. Each week, we'll read the entire passage, and so if you have your Bible out, you can follow along. We're going to read these verses. Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, 
alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Continuing into verse 25, Paul says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Let's pray. Father, we just simply ask tonight and over the next two weeks, as we look at these two paragraphs from the book of Ephesians, that your word would be living and active and powerful in our hearts and in our minds. Father, we are thankful as your people that Jesus saves us, and we are thankful that by your grace, Jesus changes us. Father, give us eyes to see the truth this evening. Give us a heart to receive it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's interesting if you look around the world, different cultures have different calendars and different methods of calculating what the current year is. Uh, Many parts of China recognize, like we do, that this is 2020, but many parts of China uh, use a traditional Chinese calendar. It's a lunisolar calendar, and in that calendar, the year right now is 4718. And in case you're curious, it's the year of the rat, 4718. Uh, The Hebrew calendar, at least a traditional Hebrew calendar, is rooted in the traditional date of creation. If you sort of add up some numbers throughout the Old Testament, there's a way you can come up uh, with the number 5780, 5780. That's the year in a traditional Hebrew calendar. We, in the United States, use something called the Gregorian calendar. It was an adjustment of the Julian calendar made by Pope Gregory, and so we follow the Gregorian calendar, uh, calendar, and it's 2020, and our dating in the Gregorian calendar moves in two directions. There's A.D. and there's B.C. B.C. stands for before Christ, and if you move backwards from zero, going back into what we might call ancient history, before Christ, the numbers get bigger and bigger and bigger the further back 
you go. Then there's A.D. Sometimes people say that's after death. It's actually Anno Domini, the year of our Lord or the year of the Lord, the year Jesus is born. And in A.D., the numbers begin at zero, and then they move forward, and they get bigger and bigger the further away you get from zero. At the middle of that, there's Jesus. And this Gregorian calendar that we use all of the time recognizes that Jesus is the great divide of history. This infuriates some secular people, and they don't like the B.C. and A.D. uh, nomenclature, and so they use B.C. and B.C.E., or they come up with different abbreviations so that they don't have to acknowledge Jesus as Lord in some roundabout way. But the calendar reflects an important idea that Jesus is the great divide in history. What I want you to understand as we think about Ephesians 4 is that in the life of a Christian, in the life of every Christian, Jesus is the great divide. And you can look at every Christian's life and you can say, here was their life before Jesus, and here is their life after Jesus. And what Paul's talking about in Ephesians 4 is life after Jesus. What should it look like? Maybe not perfectly, but in what direction should we be headed? In which way should we be growing? And he's talking about that here in Ephesians 4. Several simple things I want to point out to you tonight. All we're going to try to cover tonight is verse 17, 18, 19, and 20. Here's what I want you to see first. Paul issued a command to the church in Ephesus. The things that he's saying in 17, 18, 19, 20, the things that he's saying beginning really in Ephesians 4, 1, moving forward, they're commands. They're not just suggestions or ideas, but they're commands. Look at Ephesians 4, 17. This I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of of their minds. Notice that phrase, I testify in the Lord. He's using courtroom language. And essentially what Paul is saying to his friends in Ephesus is I'm calling God himself to the witness stand. This isn't just your old buddy Paul talking. This is the testimony of God himself. Right? This is the ultimate power play move. And children do this all the time. Growing up, I was the older brother. I had one younger sister. And as we played together, I tended to view myself as the ultimate authority in that relationship. I was four years older. I was physically stronger. I'm still much more intelligent and better looking. And I said, I am the ultimate authority in this relationship. And when I would push things a little bit too far, my little sister would, let's say, go over my head. Oh, really? I'm telling mom, well, that's a trump card. You just went above my pay grade. Or if she was really serious, she might say, I'm telling dad, and I'm daddy's girl, and he's going to come get you. It's an appeal to a greater authority. And Paul in this passage isn't just talking as a friend, but he's making an appeal to the highest authority, right? Not only is this Paul their buddy, this is Paul the apostle. He has apostolic authority. But in this section, he stops and he says, listen, listen, listen. 
What I'm saying is coming from God. I'm testifying in the Lord. This is coming from the highest authority. And what he says to them is, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. I need you to wrap your mind around this. We're going to go back to English class for just a moment. Paul's imperative here comes after the indicative. There's an imperative in this book, a bunch of them, and there are indicatives in this book. An imperative is a command. It's Paul saying, you need to do this, you need to do that, this is who I'm asking you to be, this is the direction I'm asking you to go. He's issuing commands. Those are imperative statements. But before Paul ever does that in the book of Ephesians, he issues a lot of indicative statements. Statements where he simply says, this is a matter of fact about what has happened in history through Jesus Christ and how it impacts you. Paul does not open the book of Ephesians by saying, this is Paul, I'm writing to my friends in Ephesus, the first thing I'm going to tell you is, quit walking like the Gentiles. He doesn't lead with the imperative, with the command, he leads with the indicative. And he begins to talk in the early chapters of this book about gospel Facts. So if you have your Bible open, just quickly look. We're not going to read a lot of this. I just want you to see it. In Ephesians 1 verse 3, he begins with a blessing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that sentence that begins in verse 3 runs all the way down to verse 14. It's one sentence. It's one thought in Paul's mind. And that entire section of the book is an indicative statement. Paul saying... This is what the triune God has done to sovereignly and graciously save you. The Father loved you before you loved Him. The Son died for you while you were still a sinner. He shed His blood to purchase you. And the Holy Spirit of God has given you life and sealed you for the day of redemption. The triune God has saved you. That's fact. It's indicative. It's truth. In chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, here's some indicative statements. You were dead in trespasses and sins. That's just fact about who you are left to yourself. And the good news of the gospel, here's the good news, the truth of the gospel, is that you are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. Not your good works. Paul lays that out in Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. Later in chapter 2, he starts to talk about something we talked about recently. He says, not only have you been brought into a restored relationship with God, but you have a new relationship with other believers. Right? There's this vertical relationship that's been repaired, and now there's a new horizontal relationship that exists between you and all of God's people. In chapter 3, he starts to talk about the mystery of the gospel. Look at chapter 3, verse 6. He's talking about the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. Verse 7, of this gospel, I was made a minister. All of these chapters, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, he's just talking about gospel facts. This is what God has done. And it's not until you get to Ephesians 4, verse 1, that you read this. I... Therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk. There's that word. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. 
That's the hinge in the book. All of these indicative statements that he's been piling up now shift, and in chapter 4, verse 1, he begins to issue imperatives. You and I have to make sure we get the order of operations right here. Okay, I took you back to fifth grade English class. Now let's go back to fifth grade math class. You remember the order of operations from fifth grade math? Sometimes it's called PIMDAS. I learned it, please excuse my dear Aunt Sally. This is the order of operations. You've got to go through this order if you want to get the math problem right. Some of you I see on Facebook guessing about math problems in a little meme, and you didn't learn the order of operations. And I look at your math answer, and I say, eh, you didn't use the order of operations correctly. First, you do parentheses, then exponents, then multiplication, division, and last addition and subtraction. If you follow the order of operations, the answer comes out correct. If you don't, it doesn't. The same is true with the gospel. If you get this flipped you lose the gospel. First comes Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. The gospel truth about what God has done to save sinners. Then, and only then, do you shift to the imperative. Where Paul begins to say to his friends, in light of what God has done, this is what you are now to do. Don't miss this. Ephesians 4.17, Paul is not making a mere suggestion. Everything that begins in Ephesians 4.1 and following is an apostolic command. It's a command as he's testifying in the Lord. It's not a suggestion. And I know the way human beings think. When I say to you it's a command, it's not optional, you and I begin to think, so this is how I get to heaven. This is where you're really telling me, I've got to do these things if I want to be a Christian and go to heaven when I die. That's not what I'm telling you. That's not the order of operations. First, God in his grace acts to save us. It is by grace alone, alone, through faith alone, alone, in Jesus alone, only Jesus When you get that part of the equation down, then you move to the imperative. And in our minds, we say, well, if that part's done, well, the rest seems a little bit optional. It's not. It's not a suggestion. Look, over the last month, we've got instruction from a lot of different people, presidents, governors, task force, doctors, pastors, You know, we've heard things about masks and social distancing and six feet this and uh, don't sit in the blue row Sunday morning, sit in the red row and uh, don't go to school and work remotely at home. Some of those things have been commands and some of those things have been suggestions and some of those things have been recommendations and some of those things are not optional and some of those things are optional. And we've just kind of tried to wade through it and figure it out as we go. Here's what I'm saying to you. The stuff Paul's talking about in Ephesians 4 is not optional. It's not a suggestion. It's not what we do in order to earn our way with God and go to heaven when we die. But it's also not optional. It's a command. Here's the command. Paul told the Ephesians they should not walk like the Gentiles. In Ephesians 4.1, he said walk worthy 
of the calling you've received. Now he says, don't walk like the Gentiles. The word walk here refers to the entirety of your life. He's not talking about the bored people in your neighborhood who keep walking up and down the street looking for something to do. We're not talking about light aerobic activity. We're not talking about what you do with your dog once a day or once a week. We're talking about the entirety of your life. We're talking about Genesis 5 that says, once upon a time there was a man named Enoch and he walked with God. It's not saying that God and Enoch were exercise buddies. It's saying to you, this is a man who had a genuine, living, growing, vibrant, real relationship with God. They walked together. Here's what I think is funny about this passage. Many of the people that Paul was talking to were Gentiles. That was their ethnicity, non-Jewish, meaning Gentile. And Paul says to his friends, don't walk like the Gentiles walk. It would be like bringing a guest speaker into our church and they say, hey, don't live like Texans. We would bow up and we would say, what do you mean don't live like Texans? We are Texans. Some of us are born Texans. Some of us... Some of us converted as quickly as we could to become Texans. Some of us are from Arkansas, and we just barely snuck in, and we couldn't be happier to be here. We're Texans. What do you mean don't live like Texans? It would be like taking a mission trip to Kenya, and we get all our pastor friends together, and we meet in one of their churches, and we say, here you go, number one, don't be Kenyan. Don't act like all the Kenyan people out there. Paul says to a largely Gentile church, don't walk like Gentiles. What he's saying is, I don't want you to look like everyone else that lives in Ephesus. He's saying to his friends, I don't want you to look the way you used to look before you met Jesus. I want you to be different. Do you know why Paul wanted that so badly for his friends? Do you know why he commands that to his friends is because he knows if you walk like a Gentile, here's how it ends. And he lays it out in verse 18 and 19. He describes the death spiral of sin. I read these verses a moment ago. I just want to read them again. and I just want you to listen to what Paul actually says about the way the Gentiles walk. Ephesians 4, 18. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated, from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. There's not one phrase in verse 18 or 19 that you would want written in your obituary. There's not one thing that Paul says about the walk of a Gentile that you would want me or Corey or Hunter or Jake or any of us to stand up and say at your funeral. You want me to tell you about Billy Bob? Well, let me tell you about him. He was darkened in his understanding, like a man walking around 
in the pitch black of night. He just couldn't see where he was going. He was ignorant. He was calloused. His heart was hard. He gave himself up to sensuality. And get this, the end of verse 19. Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Just looking for more and more and more sin that you think will make you happy and fulfilled. Greedy to commit these impurities. Paul says that's who you were and I don't want you to walk like the Gentiles. Don't walk like the Gentiles. Instead, he reminds the Ephesians that they, quote, learned Christ. Learned Christ. Look at verse 20. But that is not the way you learned Christ. I learned something new this week. This is the only example in the entire New Testament of somebody learning a person. That grammatical construction does not occur anywhere else in the Greek New Testament. You learned Christ. It doesn't really sound like good English to us. You almost think that Paul should have picked a different verb. Typically, we learn information or skills, right? We learn the order of operations in fifth grade math. We learn the difference between an imperative statement and an indicative statement. Not too long ago, my wife was studying. She spent several months studying for the CPA exam and uh, taking the CPA exam as four parts, and she bought a study material called Roger CPA. And there's this guy named Roger Phillip. And I got tired of hearing Roger Phillip in my house talking about numbers and tax forms and audits and all these sorts of things. And Roger, in this video, he's loud and he's boisterous and he's funny and he says all sorts of dopey things to help you remember uh, tax information and accounting information. He teaches you a lot of information, right? There's data that you learn. And he teaches you skills, Here's how you perform this calculation. Here's how you would go about performing this audit. Here's how you would go about handling this situation. There's a a learning of information. There's a learning of skills. What there's not is a learning of Roger. I mean, we watched this guy on video for hours, not me, my wife. She didn't learn Roger. She learned information. He learned skills, but Paul says to the Ephesians, he doesn't say you learned theology. He doesn't say you learned how to do short-term mission trips. That would be information or skill. What he says is you learned Christ. You learned Christ. At a very minimum, it means the Ephesians learned about the person, the work, and the calling of Christ. They learned his person, who he is. He's fully God, he's fully man, two natures united in one person, he's the promised Messiah. That's who he is, that's the person of Christ. They learned the work of Christ, what he accomplished in his life of perfect obedience, in his sacrificial death on the cross, in his resurrection from the dead, in his ascension and enthronement in heaven. They learned about the calling that he placed on our lives, repent of your sins and believe in the gospel. They learned all of that information, but it was more than information. The Ephesians, all those 
times they met in the synagogue in Ephesus or the hall of Tyrannus in Ephesus, they weren't just studying to pass a systematic theology exam. They were learning Christ. They met Jesus. They had a relationship with Jesus. And here's what Paul's saying. Learning Christ changes our lives. It changes us. This is the great divide in the life of any Christian. Before you learn Christ and after you learn Christ. One of the things that we teach by way of information and skill when we send people on a short-term mission trip is how to share the gospel and how to share your testimony. And we talk about all sorts of things and uh, as we teach gospel presentations, and we try to keep our testimonies very, very simple. And in recent years, here's a, a template we've used to help people learn how to share your testimony. Don't spend a lot of time on it. Just fill in the blanks. There was a time in my life when I, and then you fill in a blank here, talking about before Jesus, and then in the heart of your testimony, you say, then I turned from my sin and I trusted in Jesus. You talk about your conversion experience, and then you talk about life after Jesus. Now I have, and you fill in the blank. It's so just a simple way to say, this was me before Jesus, and then I met Jesus. I learned Christ, and now this is what's different. For some people, the contrast in that is very dramatic. And for some people, you say, well, I don't have much of a contrast. Some of you are like me, and you grew up spending your earliest weeks of life in a church nursery. You say, I've been in every age-graded Sunday school class you can be in. I've promoted and passed through all of them. I don't remember a time in my life where I was strung out, lying in the gutter uh, with no hope, broke and homeless and ruined all my relationships. That's my story. But there's a part of my story that is before Jesus. There's a part of your story that's before Jesus. And so for me, I might fill this, this in like this. There was a time in my life where I attended church every week because my parents took me to church every week. But I didn't actually know Jesus. As an elementary student, I turned from my sin and I trusted Jesus for the first time. Now, I still attend church every week. But it's not because my parents take me. It's because I know Jesus. and I want to worship Him and I want to be with His people. That's a very simple before and after story. And the heart of it is meeting, learning Christ. What Paul is saying is really simple. Paul's reminding his friends in Ephesus that Jesus is not like a, a jar of Play-Doh. We were bored recently on quarantine. We got on Amazon and we ordered a 24-pack of Play-Doh, all the colors you can imagine, and they came in. And you remember as a child how much fun it is to crack open a new jar of Play-Doh. Nobody's put their grimy fingers on it yet, and the colors aren't mixed together and looking dirty. And there's an excitement in that, and you get that Play-Doh out. You can turn it, at least as far as your skill will take you, into whatever you want it to be. Mostly I make snakes and ropes. That's about all I can do. Maybe a pancake every now and then. You take Play-Doh and you mold it into what you want it to be. Jesus is not like Play-Doh. You don't meet him and mold him into who you want him to be. You don't tell him how you want him to help you in your life. 
That's not how it works. In fact, the Bible says it's exactly the opposite. He's the potter. We're the clay. And when you learn Christ, he begins to shape you and mold you and maybe pinch a part of you off and maybe add something else in. And he begins to make you into the person that he wants you to be. And the end result is that you begin to walk differently. You begin over time increasingly to walk worthy of the calling that you've received in Jesus, Ephesians 4.1. You begin to no longer walk like the Gentiles. You don't walk like everyone else. You don't walk like you used to walk. And it's not because you're trying to work your way into anything. It's because Jesus is working on you.